0: My name is Usha. I'm calling from Bel Air in Maryland. I'm sorely disappointed with President Biden for giving legitimacy to MBS. The man is a cold-blooded murderer, and despite his lip service to liberalization, uh, he heads a repressive regime. And uh, Putin faced no sanctions for his actions in Syria and Chechnya, and that emboldened him to invade Ukraine. Jamal Khashoggi's um, sadistic murder still rankles. So global killers and murderers should never be coddled. And that is what President Biden does when he visits MBS and legitimizes him.
1: President Biden is back in Washington after his first trip to the Middle East as president, and the visit's already generating some heat. During a stop in Saudi Arabia, Biden sat down with and fist-bumped its de facto ruler, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. According to U.S. intelligence, MBS ordered the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post columnist and outspoken critic of the Saudi government. Saudi Arabia is known for punishing dissent, and it has a poor record on women's rights. During a presidential debate in 2019, Biden said he would crack down on Saudi leaders for their human rights abuses.
2: Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and
1: dismembered,
2: and I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear. We were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah
1: that they are. That was candidate Biden in 2019. But in 2022, President Biden says we need a, quote, more secure and integrated Middle East. So what changed and was the trip worth it? We'll answer those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to have your questions answered on future conversations, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining me now is John Kirby. He's the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House. He also traveled with the president to the Middle East. John, welcome back to 1A.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
1: So both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch say the kingdom has a long history of well-documented human rights abuses. So why was the president intent on resetting America's relationship with Saudi Arabia?
0: Well, there's a couple of things here. One, uh, when he took office, of course, the first thing he did was uh, release the intelligence community's report about the Khashoggi killing. He instituted a visa ban, and uh, and he sanctioned Saudi officials. But he also said, we're going to have to reorient this relationship, but we don't want to rupture it. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a strategic partner across a range of uh, of issues in the region and globally. uh, And it was important for the president uh, to move forward in this relationship in a different way than it was done in the previous administration. The other thing I would say is that the very first thing that he mentioned when he sat down with, the, uh, with Saudi officials, which included the crown prince, the very first item he brought up was Mr. Khashoggi's killing uh, and his concerns about that. And of course, he was honest with the press after that, to, to kind of uh, detailing that conversation. The president feels strongly that if you're going to say, as he does, that values have to be at the center of our foreign policy and that we're never going to shy away from espousing human rights and press freedoms... The best way to do that is face-to-face, Yeah, I, I just want to point out that
1: a, a Saudi diplomat in the room at the time um, reports at MBS denied responsibility. We know American intelligence says that's not true. So what does accountability look like for MBS's role in the death of a U.S. resident?
0: Well, as I said, the president um, already uh, sou- uh, sanctioned Senior Saudi officials. He instituted uh, a visa ban that's now been used more than 70 times. We call it the Khashoggi ban for a reason. And of course, he made public the intel community's report. He's also been very honest about his views. In fact, the the night he met with uh, the Crown Prince and Saudi officials and talked to the press, he he was very open and honest about uh, how directly he raised his concerns over the Khashoggi killing in the room with everybody there. Um, And so there there has been measures of accountability taken by this administration.
1: Do do you feel like they are adequate in that we're talking about the death of someone who was a resident in the U.S. at the time?
0: The the president feels uh, comfortable that uh, he has taken appropriate means uh, to hold uh, Saudi Arabia accountable. He's also comfortable that um, he also took steps to reorient the relationship uh, in a different way, uh, it is not the same sort of bilateral relationship that it that it was under the previous administration uh, or even previous administrations. To that, uh, it's different, but it's also in still important. In, in, what, it, in
1: what way, John? It, How is it
0: different? Be, because because again, we we took steps to hold uh, uh, Saudi officials accountable for this, um, and it, he's been in office eighteen months, and this is the first time that uh, that he's uh, that he's met. Uh, with with the the crown prince and and Saudi officials, although he did speak to King Salman a couple of times. I think we need to remember that it is important that Saudi Arabia remain a strategic partner in the region. They are key to a lot of things that directly impact U.S. national interests. The war in Yemen, which is now on a 15th week of a ceasefire, the challenge against Iran, which continues to to grow their uh, ballistic missile capability and certainly have not given up on their nuclear ambitions, counterterrorism, climate change, uh, food security. All these issues were discussed, and all of them bear a hand in our own national security interests. And that's why the president felt that this was the right time to go to
1: Saudi Arabia. Uh, let's hear from Lina Al-Hathloul. She's a Saudi rights activist uh, speaking to CNN. Her sister was detained in Saudi Arabia for leading the Women to Drive campaign. And she's since been released, but is still under very, very tight restrictions.
0: The important thing is how MBS perceives it. For him, it's a big win. Biden is coming to Saudi Arabia. He has, you know, He completed all this scandal with a big win. Finally, Biden is coming to see him. And so he will be emboldened after that. He will feel like he's being rehabilitated and that no one will hold him to account after all these crimes. And the second thing is that President Biden is saying that he is going to mention or talk about human rights. But concretely, what does that mean? I mean, we need to have real concessions after Biden uh, leaves Saudi Arabia. We have to see releases of political prisoners.
1: Now, Biden has said that human rights are at the center of his foreign policy, but as far as we know, he didn't push for the release of any political prisoners in the country, some of whom are U.S. citizens. Why not?
0: Well, president biden did talk about uh, wrongfully detained uh, american citizens in in his conversations uh, in, in saudi arabia in fact he he meant he he speaks about it routinely with with leaders all around the world again we'll talked about or
1: the, or pushed for the release of those pr- political prisoners i'm not
0: going to detail individual uh, diplomatic conversations i can assure you that president biden brought up his concerns about wrongfully detained americans as he does all the time again you can't advance human rights. You can't say that it's a part of your foreign policy and then not go and not talk about it and not press leaders face to face. And that was very important to the to the president. I want to remind it was the first thing he brought up, not not energy security, not food security, not economic security. The first thing he brought up when he sat down with Saudi officials was human rights and the Khashoggi case, because he believes that's the best way to move those balls forward by being in the room, and, and having direct conversations, which he did,
1: on Sunday, Washington Post columnist Karen Atia wrote, "Quote: Biden fist bumped a man who has my friend and colleagues' blood on his hands." She added, "Quote: Visuals like these help MBS consolidate power, and now Biden has given him a supercharged one." Uh, John, we know these these meetings are highly coordinated. With that type of coordination. How was that fist bump allowed to happen at all? Because it now has become a moment that is that is captured. Uh,
0: frankly, uh, we think people are making much more out of the image of a fist bump uh, than needs to be made. It was a brief, terse uh, greeting. Uh, between two leaders. Uh, Saudi was hosting the GCC summit. The president went there in the context of the GCC summit. Obviously, there were bilateral discussions uh, with the Saudis. He was focused on the meetings, not the greetings. He was focused on the substance of the things that we needed to get done while we were there. And we achieved an awful lot. Uh, Additional food security uh, donations, not just from the United States, but from from Arab allies. Um, uh, Investments in the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Talked about energy security. And we may see some some decisions out of OPEC soon as a result of that, bringing Iraq into the uh, electrical grid for the GCC. All of these things are important to regional stability and security, which is important to American national security. He was focused more on the substance uh, than on the individual greeting.
1: What were some of the other outcomes of that summit in Saudi Arabia?
0: Well, again, I think, you know, a, a big outcome was, uh, was uh, getting the GCC nations to agree to a $3 billion investment in projects that align with the President's U.S. Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. This is a a, a program, a partnership that he announced during the G7 and uh, coming out of this uh, the the GCC uh, partners agreed to three billion dollars that will be that will make a significant impact they had uh, unity on talking about the climate crisis and bolstering global energy security through investments in climate resilient infrastructure and transformational uh, energy technologies um, they they talk, they security agreements to develop, expand, and deploy uh, secure information and communications technology. And of course, he talked about advancing gender equality and equity from care infrastructure uh, that increases opportunities for economic participation by women to improve water and sanitation. So there was an awful lot that came out of this that, that didn't make all the headlines that uh, that uh, that certainly uh, I, I think they deserve to make. And, and lastly, and this is not unimportant, they had a very good discussion about integrated air and missile defense cooperation throughout the region. Many of these nations, and we work with them bilaterally, have sophisticated air and missile defense capabilities. And we are trying to advance a vision where we can integrate them better. So it's not just the United States, and it's not just any one nation, that all of them can work together because of the growing threat by Iran and their ballistic missile capability, as well as their aggressive use of UAVs.
1: Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producer in the world. After the visit, Biden says he expects the country to increase oil output, but he failed to get a commitment from them so how do you respond more broadly to the critique that Biden gave up more by going to Saudi Arabia than what he got in return?
0: Well, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, we didn't we we, we didn't go into this trip expecting or planning that we would get some sort of oil production announcement. That wasn't the that wasn't the, the prime focus here. That said, I think it's noteworthy that in uh, over the course of this summer, OPEC plus three has increased production by 50% over planned increases. Um, and, w- you know, we, we got some optimistic uh, signals from them uh, that there could be uh, some planned increases going forward. Again, we'll have to wait and see where this goes. The president said it could be a couple of weeks, two, three weeks before we might see something. Uh, but we feel uh, we, we feel optimistic about that.
1: That's John Kirby. He's the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. John, thanks for your time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: This weekend, President Biden said the U.S. will not walk away from the Middle East. But what exactly does that mean in practice? We talk about that and more in just a moment. Remember, to join future conversations, you can download the 1A Box Pop app and leave us a message. We're discussing Biden's first presidential trip to the Middle East and the outcomes of that trip. Joining us to discuss is Douglas London. He's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's also a former CIA officer who served in the Middle East and the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Also with us is Dalia Dasake. She's a senior fellow at the UCLA Burkle Center for International Relations. She's also the former director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy at the Rand Corporation. Thanks to you both for joining us. Douglas, give us some perspective on Saudi leadership. The president met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman without King Salman in the room. Just lay out the politics Biden was walking into this weekend.
3: Well, currently, as I think is fairly well covered in the press, uh, Mohammed bin Salman is the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. He's making the day-to-day decisions. He's he's directing policy. King Salman has been ill for a great number of years. I, I saw the man last in 2014, and he was looking pretty poorly then. So from what we understand, uh, he's probably barely ambulatory, and certainly not really in the thick of things. But his his basic presence still does carry a fair bit of weight in the sense that Prince Mohammed understands he does have some boundaries, both by virtue of limitations of not being the king, but also uh, in his father's memory. And a good deal of his support comes from those who support his father. So meeting with Prince uh, Mohammed, though, what really differs from previous Saudi leaders is he just leads differently in the first place. He's not a consensus builder. Most Saudi monarchs have led with consensus across not only the royal family, but also among its tribes. So the president knows he's dealing with the man who's making the decisions where, you know, having met with a previous monarch, he probably would have said nice things and still had to consult. What Prince Mohammed says, he's probably going to keep to do one way or another.
1: Dahlia, you wrote critically about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia before he left. Why do you believe this trip was a mistake?
4: Well thanks Jen I you know I think it's a question of trade-offs and you know given the kind of moral compromise the president has clearly made um, with the uh, what was I guess not a handshake but a fist bump um, but but you know giving the reward of, of of the first presidential visit to an Arab country to Saudi Arabia under MBS as Douglas just laid out the kind of leader uh, that MBS is. Um, That, you know, would require uh, understanding what is the United States getting back in return for this. And so my biggest concern, in addition to the human rights concerns and the concerns about potentially emboldening a fairly reckless leader like Mohammed bin Salman, is that it's not clear um, if the U.S. is really advancing those interests that John Kirby had outlined earlier. Um, okay, the administration's downplaying oil, um, but there was some expectation that there would be maybe some movement there. We did not see that. And and the, the reality is the Saudis probably do not have the ability to make a measurable, on their own, to make a measurable impact uh, that would affect Americans at the gas pump um, in terms of lowering prices. What I think actually was most surprising on this trip was we got even less on the issue of Israeli normalization with the Saudis then, then was kind of hyped ahead of time. Uh, the movement of normalization is going ahead with or without a presidential visit. You didn't have to go to Saudi Arabia for that. Uh, but what's notable is the administration was really touting an overflight agreement with the Israelis, uh, sorry, with the Saudis uh, that would allow Israel air, Israeli aircraft to overfly uh, in, in Saudi territory. And even before or as the president was leaving from this trip, the Saudi foreign minister was already throwing cold water on that saying it really isn't a step to our normalization. Um, And then when it comes to Iran, there was more cold water thrown on um, the idea that this trip was the beginning of building a big uh, air defense alliance between the Arab states and Israel, uh, something the Israelis had talked a lot about and the administration had talked a lot about ahead of time. None of this transpired. So we'll see in in the weeks and months ahead if more is to come. But the reality is it's a complicated region. They're not ready to just line up behind the United States. Uh, They themselves, many of our closest partners don't want to be targeted by Iran. So it's not clear why this visit was necessary to advance any of those of those interests, and whether we could not have thought of a different way to do this without the moral compromise. Uh, Adelia, what about the
1: argument that presidents must meet with leaders they don't agree with in order to to push forward common goals, even if that process is, is slow, if it's not an immediate return? What do you make of that argument in this context?
4: Well, absolutely. I agree with that principle. Um, you know, we should be meeting with adversaries as well as partners, um, even those partners who are doing things that are uh, many times not in line with our interests, as is the case today with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, I think the issue, though, is you don't have to elevate a partnership. I mean, by choosing Saudi Arabia as the host, John Kirby, you know, kind of alluded to, well, you know, they were the host, so we had to do this fist bump. You know, it, it could have been in a different capital, a multilateral meeting, where it would just be kind of a normal, uh, at some point, the president would have to cross paths and, you know, have a formal handshake of sorts with with Mohammed bin Salman, along with others. But by choosing the Saudis as the host, it really elevated their role in in terms of US thinking about the region, in terms of the relationship, it's time to normalize the relationship. And so I think that's the big concern, not that the meeting itself happened, but how it happened.
1: Douglas, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the outcome of Biden's meeting with with MBS. What do you think the president accomplished here, if anything?
3: It's a tough subject to argue objectively. Uh, There's practical realities. There's also a great many intangibles. And to Dahlia's point, simply the perception of the president having elevated Prince Mohammed is a a significant intangible, and most likely what drove Prince Mohammed's interest in having the meeting. To her other point, uh, I totally agree. And my understanding was there was some effort on the part of the United States to have this be a meeting of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the president meeting the GCC, which I think they wanted to have in the Emirates so that he could have just, in fact, come across uh, the crown prince's path, but that just didn't pan out. And they still tried to spin the logistics as best they could to make it look like, well, the president wasn't coming to see Prince Mohammed bin a but was coming to see the GCC. If you look at, you know, as best as one can be objective, the president did get a great many of what the US sort to accomplish and dealing with Saudi Arabia, it's a complicated place and I dealt with Saudi Arabia a great deal over, over my 34 years plus in the CIA. There's a lot that happens behind closed doors that they need to happen in a more compartmented way so as to not only save face, but to protect themselves from very many internal dynamics. Many of the most sensitive Saudi issues that we dealt with as an intelligence service, the Saudis really limited to the number of people involved because there's a whole bunch of different perspectives and opinions there. The president uh, did get a greater public exposure of Saudi cooperation with Israel. You have to understand the Saudis have been meeting Israeli intelligence chiefs for years and having that sort of engagement and having military cooperation. The fact that they're being a little public on it, you know, for the United States and politically for Biden, I would have to think is, is a bit of victory. Uh, Dali's point is, is spot on that there's only so much the Saudis can do on increasing capability themselves but they're an influence, which is important in terms of just overall policy. And you heard of John Kirby speak of the OPEC plus three. So that's pretty important. And my impression is there were already understandings met so that no immediate announcement would come off the meeting. So neither party could claim victory, but we'll probably see some announcements of oil policy changes over the the coming month or so. Uh,
1: Douglas, I'm glad you turned there because I'm I'm there are the, the optics uh, on the US
3: side of things, but then what does this meeting mean for MBS? For MBS, it is, in fact, uh, to Dalia's point, the legitimacy that he wanted. Uh, you, you've got to see it uh, in terms of the, the, the playing field. MBS has had to swallow his pride quite a bit over the past year or so. He tried to bring Qatar to its knees economically. That failed. He had to be the first one to go to Doha to make the visit even before the Al-Thanis came to Saudi Arabia. He was you know, putting on this sort of tough guy uh, effort with the Iranians going to war in Yemen, and his military has been humble both by the, the, the combat in Yemen, where it's just been a catastrophic human uh, bloodbath there, which has been awful for everybody's equities across the board, not least of which the poor Yemenis and what they've, they've suffered. But the missile attacks that have been daily, or not daily, but raining on Saudi Arabia. So it made his country look bad. Even Turkey, Erdogan. I mean, it was Erdogan's government who put out all the exposure of here's how Khashoggi died, here's tapes, whatever. So, you know, he's, he's had it come a long way. So getting that
1: recognition was important. Well, let's listen to President Biden speaking at the summit in Saudi Arabia this weekend.
2: Let me state clearly that the United States is going to remain an active, engaged partner in the Middle East. As the world grows more competitive and the challenges we face more complex, it is only becoming clear to me that how closely interwoven America's interests are with the successes of the Middle East. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia, or Iran. We'll seek to build on this moment with active, principled American leadership.
1: Adalia, you saw the summit as one of the positives of the trip. What did you take away from that meeting?
4: Yeah, well, I think, look, some of the uh, regional issues that, in fact, John Kirby just raised, you know, investments in infrastructure, food security, uh, energy integration, these are climate, these are all really critical issues of the region. uh, And those are the issues that should be the focus. Uh, It should not be the focus of elevating the Saudis. um, And I think that is positive. The, the dilemma is, is that the way in which this trip was framed and the setting and a lot of the dialogue that took place right before the Saudi stop in Israel was very much making the issue of Israeli integration in the region and aligned with that the, you know, attempt to form this uh, kind of uh, broad alliance against Iran. And of course, Iran is a problematic actor and with the nuclear backdrop of the nuclear deal unraveling, um, that is a very serious challenge for for the entire neighborhood. Um, But making it about those things distracts attention a little bit from or quite a bit from the idea of more inclusive cooperation. And will have to at some point also include Iran. Um, Iran is a big spoiler here, and most of these countries that we're trying to work with in the GCC do not want to be the target of Iranian retaliation. They do not want to be in the crosshairs. So the enthusiasm, there was a real enthusiasm gap between what the administration was trying to tout as this big effort to game changer of Israel in the region and making it all about Israel, and, um, and this alliance against Iran and the neighborhood basically saying, uh, we didn't really, we, at least publicly, we didn't really sign up for that. Lots happening behind the scenes. I agree with that. But publicly, there were some pretty embarrassing statements issued that really countered direct talking points of the administration during the trip. So I think that's unfortunate and does take away from this more positive agenda that is really critical to advance.
1: Uh, Douglas, how much do you see oil as the reason for this visit?
3: No, Oil is clearly significant, but uh, Prince Mohammed is also intent on trying to move Saudi Arabia away from uh, petrochemical dependence, and he needs to as part of his Vision 2030 plan. So as we've already mentioned, there's only so much uh, capacity on the part of uh, Saudi Arabia and the other uh, states in in OPEC, and the OPEC plus three. uh, It's still significant. It's still an important part of uh, the president's domestic concerns because that's driving inflation. The energy prices are driving so many other things. But uh, for the the crown prince, high tech, it was also a big piece of this visit and the president's announcement about how we're going to give him this new innovative 5G uh, technology. And Saudi Arabia already has some degree of 5G. In fact, I think uh, most of the countries covered it for But this is going to be much more innovative and high tech. And the crown prince needs to give his people a higher standard of living if he's going to deny them political expression and human rights. So that was a key component here. Dahlia, Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia was also part of his
1: mission to end the war in Yemen. Biden said that Saudi Arabia is committed to continuing truce talks. How hopeful do those talks look?
4: Well, you know, it's a very fragile situation. A lot of the gains the administration was talking about um, really came well before this visit. In fact, it's the United Nations that played a very instrumental role in brokering that ceasefire, which is critical, as your caller uh, acknowledged uh, the Yemen war, which was launched by Mohammed bin Salman and and supported, actually by the United States uh, first under under the Obama administration. In fact, uh, but continued through Trump and then through Biden, um, has been catastrophic. It's led to uh, severe humanitarian crises and 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 significantly high numbers of. Uh, civilian casualties, and there's still not acceptable accountability for those crimes. So it is important for that truce to continue. It's not clear this how much this trip advanced that um, beyond what was already happening. It's still fragile. The Houthis, who are the militia force fighting um, Saudi-aligned groups, have you know raised questions about whether they're going to stick to the ceasefire. Uh, so I, I don't think we can call this a victory yet, but I think it is right to focus attention on this very critical issue.
1: Dahlia, another of the president's major goals for the trip was countering Chinese and Russian influence in the region. What do you see happening there?
4: Well, I'm not too optimistic there either. Uh, it's just not realistic in today's Middle East. I, you know, Douglas mentioned, and it's right, that the U- U.S. still has significant advantages, especially in the military security arena, um, though the Chinese have been uh, engaged in more drone sales and um, development than we would like to see. But still, the U.S. has a leg up on that arena. But China and Russia are in the region in a way they were not in previous de- decades. This is not an era of U.S. predominance. And the neighborhood does not want to just uh, jump on the U.S. bandwagon and give up their growing ties with China and Russia. Uh, You see this in the reluctance of the neighborhood to stand up to Putin, and some of our closest allies are still Um, not supporting the sanctions regime and, in fact, are engaging uh, in, as your caller noted, robust trade with both uh, with Russia and um, and benefiting from the oil crisis of the Ukraine war. So I think it's a it's it's a dangerous goal to try to make. Competition with China and Russia—the new uh, rationale for why the U.S. should stay engaged in the region. Um, we should be smart about how we push back, uh, but not have unrealistic expectations about uh, what our partners plan to do. Um, and that's why I think the cost of this trip were so high because these are not terribly realistic goals. And,
1: and just to be very clear, OPEC Plus is an informal group of, of non-OPEC members. That group is led by Russia, and then the 13-member organization of the petroleum export countries. Just want to make that that clear. I'm curious to hear from each of you. Biden's now back in Washington. What are the next step here, next steps here for his administration in regards to Saudi Arabia and the Middle East more broadly? Douglas?
3: Well, there are still areas of differences between the United States and Saudi Arabia when it comes to the region, uh, where we have different perspectives on Syria, where the Saudis, like much of the Gulf states, have been more inclined to welcome back Assad into the fold, we have differences in Libya where we essentially support two different sides of the uh, of the fight there. So I, I think communications will continue to go on and they'll continue to be that transactional nook of of where we can cooperate towards common interests. I think just you know a quick circle back on China and Russia, you know the the Saudis will only trust the Russians so much given all the cooperation and interaction between Russia and Iran. And that's, that's the big nemesis. The Chinese, likewise, I think we probably made some progress there. And I think that will be a key area. And I believe the technology arrangements uh, really essentially did help to, to box out uh, Chinese influence somewhat. So I think it's sort of going back to the transactional, looking for confidence building measures, and, and building mechanisms where we can have more concrete cooperation going forward. Dahlia, uh, what about you? What will you be watching for
1: next from from Biden, his approach to the Middle East?
4: Well, I think, you know, given the pushback on on normalization and the uh, Middle East defense, air Defense Alliance, um, I, I I would expect there to be uh, quiet discussions and trying to move that forward and getting more concrete action in the future. Um, but I think what the big challenge is going to be are the issues that were not on his agenda, um, you know, which is Israel and Iran and that growing escalation there. Uh, again, those are the states actually in conflict right now, not Israel and Arab states. Um, and uh, trying to support uh, de-escalation efforts already underway between Arab states and Iran, uh, especially through Iraq. So I think the uh, Iraq angle will be very important to watch uh, moving forward. And I don't think we should give up on the Palestinian question because even if there's fatigue on it, it will likely come back uh, usually in um, unfavorable ways. And so it may not be what, what the president is looking to focus on, but it may be what he's forced to focus on.
1: That's Dahlia Dasake. She's a senior fellow at the UCLA Berkeley Center for International Relations. Also with us, Douglas London, an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's also a former CIA officer and the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Dahlia, Douglas, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.